scriptures. We went through up to verse 4 last week, seeing Abraham take a trip down into Egypt and back to avoid the famine. And now uh, he's they're back in the land that God had called them to. And so um, we pick it up at, at verse 5. And so let, I just want to read uh, from 5 to 18, and then we'll go back and go through it. It says, Now Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Pezzarite were dwelling in the land. And Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen or your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. And if I go, if, if to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, that was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord and like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. And so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, and after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I'll give it to you. And then Abram moved his tent, and he came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This might strike you funny, but I thought this would be a great way to put it, is that if one hasn't had conflict in their life, they really haven't lived. Now, you would think you'd put it a different way. But that really is true, isn't it? Um, and it's not that we enjoy conflict. Um, but it, it seems conflict between individuals is really a part of this world that we live in. And of course, as believers, we know, uh, we could look at it from a theological standpoint, and we know the reason ultimately is because man has fallen. Uh, you and I possess a, a sin nature. And so sadly, this side of heaven... There is going to be strife with other people, and you and I in the church are not exempt. It reminds me of a story I came across, and you'll like this one, about three churches that decided to join together to do a citywide revival. And so there was a Baptist church, a Methodist church, and a Presbyterian church. They worked together. They put on the revival. It was a great time, a great success. And after the revival, the three pastors were discussing the results with one another. And the Methodist minister said, the revival worked great for us. We gained four families as new members of our congregation. Well, the Baptist preacher said, well, we did even better than that. We gained six new families as members of our congregation. And the Presbyterian pastor said, well, we did even better than that. We got rid of 10 of our biggest troublemakers. <laughs> and you can relate to that, can't you? You know, it reminds me, or how about the layman who, who had it right when he noted that the problem was some of his fellow church members who seemed called to oppose every aspect of the church. He said, some people are born again and some people are born against. 
And I just thought, you know, we, we have to laugh, don't we? And so sadly, conflict with others is, is going to be something that we encounter. And as we continue in Genesis 13, we come to this time where Abram and Lot will now need to separate, go their separate ways. You'll recall that Lot is Abraham's nephew. His dad has passed away and he had traveled with Abraham from the land of Ur. And it really could be argued, and I would tend to agree, that he probably shouldn't have come to begin with. Um, because in Genesis 12:1, <coughs> it said, Abraham was called by God to go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And so you would think from your relatives meant don't bring any of your relatives. But he did. And now with strife, verse 8, between the herdsmen, Abraham sought to stop it before it went too far. And so out of these verses, we see that conflict does happen. But something as we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount on um, Wednesday nights, blessed are the peacemakers. As with Abram's heart, there is this desire then that peace could be achieved, not strife. The other thing that comes out, and I want you to be looking for these things because I think it's you know, I try to not only teach you the word, but then take with you things, is that you're going to see, and it will continue because both Abraham continues on beyond 13, and of course Lot is there too, is that there's a real difference between these two men. And, and, and it's something that we need to see, and as we see it, it can help us, it can encourage us, it can warn us. <clears throat> and so um, we see that Abram uh, tends to have a bent towards God, if you will and the things of God, while Lot, if you will, almost seems like he, he, he wants the Lord, but he's got a foot in the world. And of course, it's going to cost him dearly in the long run. And so Abraham, we could say, is more of a spiritual-minded man, um, where Lot would, we would call as what the Bible says as a cardinal or somebody that is in the flesh. And so let's just go through these, and I'll bring out some stuff to you as we make our way down. So again, verse 5, Lot who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. And so this tells us what we already know, that, that Lot, as well as Abraham, had flocks and herds. And so these guys were herdsmen. And again, I doubt if anybody here today is a herdsman or a cattleman, okay? That'd be a little weird living in Seattle and to have a cattle rancher. Now, I used to live in Montana, and that is not strange in Montana to have guys that are cattle farmers or cattle ranchers, you know. But in Seattle, that's a, a little strange. And, and, and it's interesting because they were herdsmen, and it says they had flocks as well, and there is a difference there. Flocks speaks of goats and sheep, where herds speak of cattle and ox. And so you get this idea then that they had quite an array of animals. And we know from last week, as they came back from Egypt, they also were given donkeys and camels. So they had quite an array of animals, if you will, as they uh, were now in the, the land and living together. Um, and, and it says they both had tents. And notice it's plural, that they then had, what, multiple servants, multiple people it, it, that made up these families. And the tents tell us that they lived a nomadic life, traveling where the, the food would be to sustain their flocks and herds. Verse 6, And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And so coming back to Bethel, it's Bethel is just northwest. If you could picture a map of the Holy Lands, it's just northwest of what we know today as Jerusalem. And they soon saw that the natural pasture, pasture areas 
um, could not sustain the animals that both of them had. And so even though we're not told the number, the Bible says the number was great. And by great there, it means it was abundant in quantity and size. And really, it would seem like they were probably into the, the hundreds, if not even the thousands of animals. And so, again, this is what was going on, and it created problems. And so verse 7, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Pezzarite were dwelling in the land as well. And so with many animals each day seeing that they had enough grass to feed the pastures and really the plains, um, moving them around. Also notice the mention there of the Canaanite and the Pezzarite in the area. Aren't you glad your last name isn't Pezzarite? That just, I don't know, it's just my weird way of thinking, but that, that's just a weird name. Well, how are you doing today, Mr. Pezzarite? Okay, anyway, I'm sorry. It, my mind just kind of does that sometimes, and it has nothing to do. That is not something you're to take out of here today and go, wow, that was heavy, okay? But... Uh, <laughs> But And I, I offer an apology to any of you with weird last names, okay? So anyway, but, but because of this, um, the, you know, Abraham's herds and flocks and lots and these other people's herds and flocks in the area, um, it wasn't enough. The, the land couldn't do it. And so it says strife broke out between Abraham and Lot's herdsmen. And, and really the word strife there means exactly back then what it means today. I looked it up in the uh, Hebrew, and it means to have a controversy, a dispute, or a quarrel. And so, verse 8, Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. And so, we see now Abraham's heart start to come out. And again, watch these things, you guys, because I think it's really uh, a great way for you and I to look at our own selves and, and see how we're doing in these areas. As he goes to Lot, seeking to put an end to the strife that was building. And it would seem it now had gone from the herdsmen up to Abraham and Lot, as Abram says, please let there be no strife, who, between you and me. And that's not hard to understand, is it? How things can travel that way. We just think of children. If you are a parent, you understand that. That when they're fighting, it isn't long before it goes from your two kids fighting to all of a sudden, mom and so-and-so, or dad. And so what was a, a little rumbling in the bedroom, and you weren't quite sure what it was, before you know it, it's right before you, and you've been pulled into the conflict and strife as well. And so Abraham's seeing this. He seeks to put an end to it. And so he says in verse 9, Is not the whole land before you? So please separate from me. And if to the left, then I will go to the right. And if to the right, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. And so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. And so having been told that this massive area of land was his, hundreds and hundreds of square miles, you understand how big Jerusalem is. And today it would just not only be Israel, I'm sorry, but it'd be into Syria was actually the land. And of course, down into what we know today as Jordan. And so this huge area, uh, Abraham then graciously says to Lot, pick. Here's, my, here's the land. You choose. You choose an area of your choice and I'll go to a different area. 
And so Lot chose the Jordan Valley, the area, if you could again picture the map in your mind of the, the Holy Land, and you know the, the Sea of Galilee, and then below it's the bigger Dead Sea. And so just to the south of the Dead Sea and on the east side, that whole bottom corner would have been the, the valley, the Jordan Valley, where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Today they think actually Sodom and Gomorrah are buried um, by the Dead Sea. They're underwater. I was watching a show the other day for just a little bit, okay? A lot of the shows that come on TV and they're doing biblical things, I kind of get leery of it. And you may have seen this one, and they show this pillar in that area that they say could be uh, Lot's wife. Remember, she's turned into a pillar. And I just, every time I see that, I have to laugh because it's just this outcropping of dirt. By the way, if that's Lot's wife, she was one big woman, okay? <laughs> Not this way, but man! You know, and so obviously she would have made the WNBA. But, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, I just thought, how crazy that, you know, hundreds of years and actually thousands of years later, we think that this little outcropping of dirt, and, and really, you guys, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know what I'm saying, but if you haven't, you realize that they just do that because it helps with tourism and everything else. So, you know, it's just, uh, it doesn't look like her. It looks like dirt, okay? looks like a mound of dirt, but anyway... Um, again, that's free. That was just a bonus that I threw in there for this, okay? Um, but this is the area that he goes to. And it seems like the language is kind of poetic, and I'll tell you why. Because from Bethel, you can't see the Jordan Valley. Um, I've been to both areas, and you really cannot look from the area of Bethel and see all the way down to that southeast corner of the Dead Sea. And so very possibly either Abraham and Lot had already been into this area and it's just not recorded or they had heard about it from other travelers, from other herdsmen traveling through the area, other people traveling back and forth to Egypt or whatever. And so Lot says, I'll go to the south. And, and no doubt he did so because it was a w- area that was watered and fertile. And we, we've been seeing that. And notice it says it's referenced it like the Garden of Eden, like Egypt, what they had just seen. But it's safe to say that Lot also chose this area because Sodom and Gomorrah Sodom's sister city were really populated areas and I wonder if in the back of his mind he didn't think wow I wonder what it's like there you know it's like when uh, I I did the opposite thing when I was a kid getting into drugs and kind of really messing up my life but looking now and realizing the Lord was intervening the Lord said get out of Seattle so I left the big and I headed to Montana and I remember my family, my family thought I was crazy. My brothers and my mom, they thought I'd moved to the end of the world. And of course, you've been to Montana, you know, that's not the end of the world, man. But uh, I could remember being in Montana that a lot of people that grew up in Montana, you know where they want to go? Right here. They look to come to Seattle. It's kind of like that, that big city in the distance that, wow, I wonder what it'd be like to live there. And so I get a sense that this is part of, uh, Lot's problem as he wants to go to at least close at first to Sodom and Gomorrah and it doesn't say so but it seemed like that style of living was something that might have been drawing him and so it wasn't just a concern for his livestock there's more than that and look at verse 13 we read it but it says the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord and so again it shows us that there was something there and let's be honest with ourselves the things of the world and sin itself entices us, doesn't it? It's like that fruit that we, we want to taste, but 
hopefully we know better than to do that. I thought it was interesting. Wouldn't you think it'd be enough in verse 13 if the Bible just said, and the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners? But it says they were wicked exceedingly because the emphasis is how wicked the city really was. And we'll see that as we keep moving our way through. And you'll know God does come and destroy these cities. And so um, this is what um, Lot wants to do. He wants to move down there. And look at verse 12, the last part. It says, Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And so in this incredible valley of its day, it probably a uh, uh, sin city would be a adequate description like Las Vegas okay and again I don't mean to offend anybody but I hope if you ever go to Vegas it isn't a place that you really like because it's it's when you think about what Vegas represents and gambling and how gambling destroys lives and everything else it's really a sad situation there but Lot gets as close as he can to this place you know he wanted God but he also wanted the world and and when we get to chapter 19 at verse 1 And it'll show us that this is the case with Lot because when the angels come to destroy Sodom, it says there that Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. So not only did he go from Bethel, the house of God, down into the valley of the Jordan near to Sodom, but then he moves closer. And really chapter 19, when we get there, you'll see it seems like he even had a house now in the city. And so the story, you know it, how sin had got so bad 18 verse 20 that God then uh, stepped in and he put an end to it and of course this is where Lot now is choosing to settle again keep that in mind there's a real difference here between Abraham and Lot and so we begin to see that the character is coming out um, that Lot lacks a spiritual heart for the Lord that it seems Abram has and his bent is towards the world and and pleasure and so of Abraham we read verse 12 Abraham settled in the land of Canaan And then down to verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham and Lot, after Lot had separate, now lift up your eyes and just picture this, if you will. I can really just picture, you know, not that it's happened to me or you, but could you picture being Abraham in this land and God speaks to you and says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward and southward and eastward and westward. And I wonder if at that point, God just didn't pause for a moment that gave Abraham a chance to look. And then he says, For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. And so he says, Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And so Abraham you notice where Abraham settles? He settles right where God had told him to go. He's in the land of Canaan, chapter 12, verse 5. And so after that, he left, uh, he left Haran. Remember, God said, I'll give you the land of Canaan. Now he's in that land. And so he's right where he belongs. And he reaffirms his promise when he had called him to leave Ur, uh, giving him the land, making him a people, where in verse 15 and 16, he says, all the land you see is yours. You will become a great nation. And it's interesting, you guys, because you know as well as I do, Israel has never possessed all that land to this day. And again, take any doubt of your mind where I stand, where this church stands, where Calvary chapels as a whole stand. We believe that God isn't through with Israel. We believe that God loves the Jews and they are going to come back to and see that Christ is their Messiah. And so we know that as a 
as Moses died and Joshua led them into the promised land, they didn't possess the whole land, sadly. Many of them lacked faith. They didn't believe God's promises. And even to this day, we know that Israel doesn't possess the land that we're talking about. And most believe that they still will. And it will happen when the thousand-year reign of Christ takes place in the millennium. And then they will possess all this land. And so that will be awesome. But Abraham then moves south to Hebron. Uh, Again, Bethel, just a little north of Jerusalem. Hebron, just a little southwest. And notice he built an altar there so that he might worship the Lord there as well. And remember last week we mentioned that things that mark Abraham's life are tents and altars. And so once again, here we see him building another altar, which tells us where his heart is and that he's a worshiper of the Lord. And so it seems the mistakes of Egypt, not trusting the Lord, were gone, as now the Lord is once again speaking to Abram, and he is quick to build this altar in his new home and to worship God there. And so Abraham got back to where he was supposed to be, if you will. Again, if you weren't here last week, and the whole thing with the famine in the land and him going to Egypt and back, we, it was a lack of faith on his part. He didn't trust God to provide for him. But now he's back where he belongs, okay? And God is speaking to him. And we start to see his heart and his character come out as one who does want to follow God in his ways. And so let me just show you four things about Abraham that come out in these circumstances and in these passages. Again, with in mind that we're thinking of, you know, the difference between Abraham and Lot and just looking at our own life and how God would have us be. First of all, again, I've mentioned this, but don't you see it so clearly that you have to conclude that this man had a heart for God and the things of God, didn't he? Really did, you know, because the minute he gets back, uh, you could look at verse 4 and verse 3 and 4. When the minute he comes out of Egypt, what does he do? He goes back to the place where he had been with God, Bethel, and there he worships God again. And so you see the heart. And, you know, I think there's a difference, and I want to make sure you understand this, that he had both a heart for God and the things of God. The difference, I would say, is this. To have a heart for God is the desire to worship God. It is loving God for who he is and, and what he has done for you. It's kind of like when we take communion this morning. Hopefully when you take a communion and you remember what Jesus Christ did for you, dying upon the cross, you, you just you, you worship him, you love him, because you realize you are worthy of none of that. And so that is the part of of having a heart for God himself. But then the things of God goes beyond that, and that is a heart to do God's will, a heart to obey and a heart that there's obedience there. And and we see this coming out as as he comes back to the land, to Bethel where he first worshiped the Lord, and then moving to Hebron once again, what does he do? He builds an altar. And so this is a trait that you and I need to have in our lives as believers. And again, it's not hard. I'm not trying to make this complicated. Just ask yourself, is there kind of this loop in your life where you constantly are worshiping God and thinking about God and wanting the things of God in your life? And that's important. That's what we want in our lives, you guys. And this is what we see in Abraham. Second thing is notice he is tender. He's got a tender and humble heart, if you will. Faced with this difficult situation of too many flocks in one area and the strife building, he handles it with such tenderness and sensitivity because that's what was already in his heart, see? And what was in his heart now was coming out of his heart. And so notice, look at verse 8 and verse 9 again. He says to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. And again, verse 9, please separate from me. 
And in the Hebrew, if you're using like the King James or maybe the RSV, I think it will say, I pray you. But in the, to translate it best into English, it's the idea that it is the word please. And so you see this real desire on Abraham's part to work this thing out. And, and would you please, Lot, do this? And so being kind himself, he appeals to Lot's kindness. And again, unlike Cain, who earlier in Genesis said, you know, when God says, where's Abel, your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? For Abraham, he would say, yes, I am. And I'm very mindful of Lot. And he seeks then to do what is okay or what would be good for Lot. And, and others, he really, it's a life of others more than himself. Do you see that? Here, we, we see Christ in this thing, don't we? You could say that Abraham, and he really is, he's a type of Christ in many ways. You know, in the good things, you could say that he is a type of Christ. What do we read Paul wrote in Philippians 2 at verse 6? Although he existed, speaking of Christ in the form of God, did not require, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And so that very heart that Christ had when he left heaven, when he, when he if you would, he, he set aside the fact that he was God for those years on the earth. And he became a bond servant. Let's change that. He became a slave. Because that, that's the idea there. He became uh, one who did only wanted to do what his master wanted, God the Father. Anything you want, I will do that. And this is exactly the type of heart we see now in Abraham, this tender, this humble heart that is before the Lord and, and trying to do that. And do you realize that Abram could have just said, Lot, go? He could have even said, Lot, go here. Why? Because it was, first of all, the culture was such that Lot's dad being dead, now Abram was in a sense over him in that culture. But the second thing of who got the land, the land was given to Abraham, not to Lot. And so this is what he could have done, but of course he didn't do that. Being tender, being having humility, he gave Lot the choice and humility then marked his life. And and you and I are to be that way. You guys, this is such an important thing that we remember this. You know, I was telling first service, and I don't know if you re- understand this or not, but at least try to remember it. You know, this world is like a chisel, isn't it? It's like this great big chisel, and it's just smacking down on us all the time. And you know what it is? It's don't be like Christ. Don't be like the Scriptures. Don't be like this. And and, and it's we are really in a battle then to, when when we see a passage like this, and we realize the humility in Abraham's life, and then we read a passage about Christ was humble, we realize this is a battle that we're in, to be that way, you know? And so again, this is what we see in Abraham. You know, if you were to go to a Bible dictionary, I went to Nelson's, and listen to what Nelson says about humility and humbleness. It says it's a freedom of er- from arrogance that grows out of the recognition that all we have in our comes from God. The Greek philosophers despised humility because it implied inadequacy, lack of dignity, and worthlessness to them. But this is not the meaning of humility as defined by the Bible. Jesus is a supreme example of humility, and he is completely adequate and of infinite dignity and worth. Biblical humility is not belittling oneself, but an exalting and praising of others, especially God and Christ. A humble person then focuses more on God and others than on himself. Biblical humility is also recognition that by oneself we are inadequate without dignity and worthless. Yet because we are created in God's image and because believers are in Christ, we have infinite worth and dignity. True humility does not produce pride, but gratitude. 
And so here in this man, Abraham, we see this example for you and I, that this, this tender, humble heart. Another thing we see in Abraham, and again, at first you might not think this speaks to you, but I'll show you that it does, is that he's a leader, isn't he? We see that. We see this twice as it is Abraham who goes to Lot to settle the strife that was building. And again, when giving Lot the choice, see, and he, he then moves to Hebron, possibly because of the Canaanite and the Pezzarites that were still in the area, but very possibly because he sensed the Lord was leading them. Verse 14 says the Lord was speaking to him, but he, he leads and he isn't afraid to make hard decisions. And I'm sure in many ways, it, it, it couldn't have been easy for him. You know, it might be easy to think that, well, he didn't love Lot, but I don't think that's the case at all. I think he had great love for Lot. It was his nephew. It was his brother's son who had passed away. They were family. They had been together now for a long time. And yet in order that God's will would be done and he would be glorified, Abraham then makes this decision. He says, Lot, we need to separate. And even though you and and I may not see ourselves as leaders, every one of us has to lead at times, don't we? And that includes hard decisions. I wish I could tell you this morning that if you will stand with me and you will click your heels three times, you will never have another hard decision to make in your life. And you'd go, I ain't standing because that's a lie. And it is, see? Because there's hard decisions face all of us, you know? Just think of raising children, my goodness. You know, if you're my age, your kids are older now and you kind of go, oh, and you also realize where you could have done things differently and a little bit better. But you that are still raising your little ones, it's not easy, is it? It's a challenge every single day. Or how about decisions in the home? Sometimes they're hard, you know? Most of us are not endowed with endless amounts of wealth, you know? We don't have a cash closet. (laughs) It's kind of like a money tree. But in Seattle, you have cash closets because of the rain. You know, but you don't have a closet you can just go to and it's full of cash every time you need it. So sometimes there's tough decisions to make about finances. I've been teasing my wife lately. You know, I, I have these dreams and they're just good that they're not all fulfilled. But I've been saying, you know, I'd, I really want to, I think I really want to get a motorbike this spring. And so I, uh, not just any motorbike, you know, you guys might track with me on this. There's uh, Triumph motorbikes are great motorbikes, but the Bonneville. I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't do this. I just started getting into this and, and the ladies are going, oh my goodness, what's he talking about? But anyway, it's this really cool old school bike that they started remaking. And so it's really funny because so far my wife, I haven't re- encountered much reaction from her. And I know if I ask her, you think I should, you know what the answer would be, right ladies? Yeah, I see you shaking your head. <laughs> no, right? I was telling Nettie about the motorbike, Tom's wife, and she looks at me <laughs> and she says, oh, you're not thinking of getting one, are you, Scott? I go, well, yeah. She goes, you're too accident prone. <laughs> so I made a note, don't let Nettie talk to my wife about this one. <laughs> but, but so what I'm getting at is these hard decisions, see? And you guys, I probably won't get it, Okay. It's just, uh, I want it, and it would be, uh, I'm, I probably have the flesh, <laughs> and I would love it, but, you know, it's probably not the smartest thing to do in living in a city. And so we have to make hard decisions, whether it's with kids or at home or at work, but we do. And, and we, can't ha- we can't always avoid having to lead, but you know what? 
what you need to understand is this, is that sometimes it, when those come up, you seek God. You trust God. And you can do it. And you can see when leading means making that hard and difficult decision, the Lord is with us. The Lord will be with you. And often, you know, at the time you can't see it. At the time it could be so hard. But then later we always, we see then, oh, it was for the best and this was a good thing. And so his work does get accomplished and he is glorified. And I, I just am amazed of how um, if we will just keep ourselves before the Lord, the Lord undergirds us and, and he gives us all we need for everything we need, you know. And so if it's we're mourning and we need to be comforted, he's a God of all comfort. But at the same time, when we are in a hard, difficult place, if we'll look to him and rest in him alone, he will lead us in those areas. And so the key is keep close to the Lord. Be in his word, be in prayer, and you'll hear from him and you'll know what he wants to do. And then you can do it trusting him. Remember what James said about wisdom? Abram is showing real wisdom here. And James said that if any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And so again, so important for you and I to do that. And so we see that. And then we see that he sought righteousness. By saying Abraham sought righteousness, we're not saying that he was a perfect man. He, 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 he made mistakes. He failed. We're going to see some more of that. You know, we've seen it in Egypt. And by the way, remind yourself this morning, you know, there's only one perfect man. Amen? Who is it? Exactly. Christ was the only perfect man. The only one ever, you guys. And we need to understand that he is the only perfect man. And so we want to be careful in passing judgment on other people and their failures at times. Sometimes the failure that we see in others are really our own failures. And we are, we are only seeing what needs to be taken care of in our own eyes. Do you realize that the passage where Jesus is talking about the beam and the splinter, that's exactly what he was trying to say? That at times we're very capable of seeing the little speck in somebody else's eye and there's this beam in our own eye that we can't even see. And so we have to understand that. And, but Abraham wasn't perfect, but he was righteous. He was one who did seek to live for God. And, and if you think of Abraham and Lot, especially as we keep going through Genesis, you're going to see this develop, that there was a real difference between the two. And so Lot's life really, and you remember this as we keep going, it's a warning light, you guys, to you and I. You know enough, I think, of the scriptures to know what's going to happen to Lot and how Abraham's going to have to step in and rescue him down the road. And so it's like this warning light God is saying to you and I that you can be like Abraham and want God and want righteousness that way, or you could be like Lot and you want God and you want righteousness, but I don't want to miss out on what the world offers. And again, be careful. And I would encourage or exhort any of you that are here today, if, if, you th if your life is in that place, you better be careful. You're in a bad spot. You're going to lose, really. You will lose. You can't, you know, you, what does the scripture say? You can't, you know, love God and love money. You, you can't serve two masters, and you really can't. And so we are called as believers, we are called to give ourselves wholly to Christ, period. Not half to Christ and half to the world. And yet as we give ourselves wholly to Christ, he provides for us, doesn't he? He blesses us so graciously. The word says that if we seek first the kingdom of God, all those needs will be met. And, and, it, and maybe you're here today and say, I don't know that, Scott. 
Well, again, I would say gently to you, are you seeking him? Because I think there's more in this room that would say that's true. That's true. Years ago, when Wink and I and the kids were young, we lived in Auburn, and um, we didn't make a lot of money. We managed apartments, and I can remember, and I, I know I've said this before, but I can remember one time we were literally out of money, and we had two weeks to go till payday. We literally didn't have any money. We didn't tell the kids. And Wink and I, we were at South Center just window shopping. That's what you do when you don't have any money, you know. You just kind of, come on, kids, let's go walk around the mall and look at things. And, and of course, Wink and I knew deep in our hearts that, we were in trouble. We didn't know how we were going to make it till the next payday. And so we were just obviously trusting God. And the next day, literally, a phone call came through, and I'm, I can't even tell you how it happened. And it was some realtor that I met as I managed these apartments, and he had another apartment, and he says, hey, I'm in a bind. I need this place painted. Can you do it? And I said, I think so. <laughs> and so now you're going... Yeah, I just wish he would have shown up with the cash, right? No, that doesn't always work that way. But see, God will do that, you guys, and, and God will provide. And so be careful of that. Be careful that you are not living the life that is trying to have both because really you, you'll never have ultimate happiness in that place. Ultimate happiness and fulfillment really comes when we just say it's Christ and Christ alone. Ken Hughes, he's a pastor in the Midwest, a guy I really like. He writes some great books. He said, a look at Abraham and Lot side by side is instructive. Lot chose the things that are seen and found them corrupting. Abraham looked and saw through the eyes of faith the things that are unseen, and he found great assurance and peace. And that's the truth. You know, Abraham never possessed the land uh, in, in the sense of that. It would it'd be his descendants, and he, he never saw come to pass the things that God had promised, that he had become a great nation and a great people after him. And yet he looked beyond you guys. He was a man of faith and he was looking for... And as believers, we are called to believe God's word, to see the unseen, to see with spiritual eyes, to seek righteousness over the temporary pleasures of this world. And can I encourage you this morning as we now get ready to go, that what are you facing right now? What is that thing where it, is, it requires you to have faith in God and to see the unseen? Okay. I'd be surprised if there's not, every one of us isn't facing something. Now, I'm not saying some of you are facing bigger things than others. Some still, there's health issues. Those are huge at times. But see, even in those things, God wants us to see the unseen. You know, you, I just went through back surgery right before Christmas. And it's been a little bit discouraging. I didn't want to go through a third back surgery in my 50s. And when it happened, it was really kind of a wake-up call because I realized if I don't have a back, I can't make it. It's just not going to happen. It's that simple. And even to this day, I know I seem like I'm on the mend, and I'm on the mend, but I'm not going to wrestle with any of you. I'm not even going to wrestle you ladies, okay? <laughs> you know? But, but, but it could be discouraging at times. And things are going on in my body still at times, and at times I, I just go, God, what's happening? And so he's saying, well, Scott, you need to have faith. I want you to see beyond what you're seeing and believe me to make that back strong again and to bring complete healing into that back. Amen, Stephen Dottie? Amen. You know? And so guys, listen. We're facing things, aren't we? There's things in our life. And, and rather than say, I've got to see it all before I can trust God, that is not what God calls us to. God says, no, put your faith in me. 
Look beyond what you can see. Look beyond what you can figure out. And keep believing, keep trusting, and keep praying. And watch God blow your mind. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.